My name is John Chafee. I was trained as a pastor and this is one of the ways in which I try to do something good with that education. This is Begin Again. So if you are looking for a nuanced or interesting take on the Jesus tradition and all of its wisdom and all of its perplexity and mystery, then you found the right place. I sincerely hope that this helps you to rethink some things, to maybe grow in your own way for health and holiness, for your benefit and for the benefit of those around you. So again, welcome to Begin Again. So today is a very special guest, Dr. Jordan Daniel Wood. I've appreciated your work and other interviews from you for a long time now, at least a, almost a year. But uh, thank you so much for being willing to talk about Maximus. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Thanks for inviting me, John. How, how might you um, describe yourself in three or four sentences for the average person? Oh, well, first and foremost, I am a stay-at-home dad of four young girls, eight down to one, almost two. Um, wow. So that's really my full-time job. But um, yeah, I got I got some you know degrees in uh, theology, one from SLU, one from Boston College. Um, I was raised in the Stone Campbell tradition, hmm. um, uh, sort of like Churches of Christ, the Disciples of Christ Christian churches. And then I became, my wife was raised Catholic. I became Catholic eight years ago, but I've kind of like for my whole life had this sort of connection with Eastern Christianity in particular, probably mm -hmm. honestly more than any other part of the greater tradition. So I, so all my work, my degrees, my, my, the book that we're going to discuss today, I mean, you know, St. Maximus sort of a pillar in the Eastern Christian tradition. So that's sort of where, where my head and heart have, have been for a long time. And so, um, yeah, I've, I've taught at various levels. I've taught at university level, taught at high school level. Um, yeah, and just given some informal discussions. But that's but most of the time, my time is making lunches, changing diapers, <laughs> going to parks. That's really, that's really, honestly, that's where my life really is most of the time. And then I kind of do this stuff a little on the side. So, so Maximus is your side side gig exactly right exactly yeah yeah a kind of bizarre escape from from you know the ordinary I, I guess but it works for me yeah well i have to say uh this i just finished teaching a semester at a seminary we were teaching spiritual formation with my students and one of the the lessons that really landed was christ is the logos but then everything else is the logoi and that's very technical language, but Christ is the, the reason, the blueprint, the rationale, the logic, the word, everything behind everything. And I have to say, it landed so well with these seminary students. And uh, before we go into these other topics, I'd like to just ask you, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm trying to formulate the question, actually. Seminary students actually would really benefit by doing more of church history. Not just learning what has been done the past 50 or 100 years, but there are some deep riches in here. And I think I'd like to hear you talk about what are some other really deep riches that you discovered with Maximus? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a great question. I think um, broadly, I certainly agree that that has to do with my own autobiography in terms of like the tradition I was raised in was mainly just it, it wasn't even mainline Protestant. You know, we weren't even reading or looking back to Luther or Calvin or anything like that. It was just sort of you got the New Testament and the, you, know, you got the you got the scriptures mm-hmm. and and then there was some popular level like maybe mega church pastors or something like that that you'd read some of their stuff and then there were some you know aw tozer like there's some yeah, some yeah. of the like modern classics richard foster or something would, would sort of seep in dallas willard or something um but it really was kind of like just this open just absolute open trial i, I would say like an experimental in a way but kind of like what you're alluding to it wasn't it really was kind of a um a very restricted field of experiment because it was like you're saying kind of last hundred years, maybe, you know, people in our own smaller tradition, people that are still alive or were just the generation before. But when you start to go diving kind of in the deeper ocean of Christian tradition uh, and you get down there and you find, you know, I don't know if shipwrecks the right word because there are whole parts yeah. of the, a whole other churches right now that are very much alive that, that look to these people. But let's just say, um, there's quite a lot, like you said, treasures to find, like riches to find. And sometimes it can be overwhelming because, you know, you, and I think some people get even a little afraid because, you know, you sort of throw open wide the gates of, of, the, of the treasure that's there. And then you start looking around and it, it really is sometimes just remarkably different. I mean, reading, reading say, Maximus and, or Origen, of Alexandria next to like Augustine and Jerome. I mean, sometimes there's remarkable convergences. Other times it's like, wow, I almost feel like this is totally different, two totally different perspectives. Um, And so there's the question of reconciliation, which has always been there. I mean, people have always noticed that, you know, the fathers or the authorities or these, you know, uh, uh, even the scriptures, right. Don't always agree, at least on the surface with each other. And so there's, there's this, but I actually think that's actually part of the gift of tradition itself. Mm. That's what I want to say. I want to say that, and I think Maximus beautifully not only says this in places, which he does. In fact, I'll, I want to come back to one of the ways he puts it in a second. But he performs it in when, when he's thinking through. Because, you know, what, what, what Maximus, I think, shows us, he's an example of this. And there are others, of course. But one of the, so this is a broad point that I get from him, is... Um, true reception of God's revelation is active contemplation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so, so I think very often the metaphors we use uh, um, in the various traditions are, are, are kind of objectifying ones, right? There's the deposit of faith. It's right. like, it's like a deposit that's sort of been cashed, you know, put in the box and you, you hand the box on, and or or it's um, you know uh, you know sort of the uh, kind of even some people the way, the way I was raised like the way they treat the scriptures right it's like you've got this object the scriptures you pass them on you read them and so a lot of it's external to us a lot of it is passive we receive it we pass mm-hmm. it on tradition yeah. is passing on right all that and I think what Maximus he even says at one point um, he says that I but I have heard in the scriptures seek me seek my face so i can't really receive what has been revealed unless i'm seeking to understand that which has been given to me and ultimately it's not just a good idea right it's a person so unless you're in relation active relation to what's been revealed which is nothing less than god's self then you won't really properly receive it 
And so I think that broad engagement, the sense of creativity, of synthesis as reception, oh, of, of a kind of contemplation, of the fact that I myself am not or detached in, uh, at a disinterested, sort of like at a distance from that which has been revealed, but as Colossians 3 says, for example, when Christ is manifest, Christ who is your life, you yourself will be manifest. So actually, I can't see Christ's appearance fully unless I'm simultaneously appearing to myself, and vice versa. Yeah. So these are these are the, this kind of like it's intrinsic. In other words, it's it's a part of the, it's the core of your being. It's the spirit within you that strives for the depths of God. All of these sort of verses that we read over the New Testament kind of quickly. Yeah. What it's saying. What it's saying is exactly this, right? The riches, the treasures, the wisdom, the, the treasures of wisdom. This stuff has been given in Christ, but Christ is, Colossians 1.27, in you. So Christ is in you. The Spirit is in you, striving. You strive with the Spirit that's with you. And all of this is the reception of what's been. what's been. And so what one thing we can do when we look back to Maximus or whoever, you see people receiving it in their own way, and you learn something. And there's a beautiful image I'll, I'll, I'll throw out there and say this is, the, okay. this is like, this is the broad thing I've learned from, from Maximus before we get into details. He's, he says at the beginning of uh, his work, uh, Responses to Thalassius, which is a work about um, ambiguous scriptures and how he interprets or handles them. He says in the introduction, he says the word of God, he kind of goes with origin and other slightly, it's like the word of God has been written as well as, as made flesh. He's been made flesh almost as it were in scripture. Uh -huh. But he says, he says you draw from the, the reader, the interpreter of scripture draws from scripture the waters of living right, the living waters like the spirit right and and like a plant it transforms them and so the reader becomes a fruit of the water of the soil of scripture which means now the word is taking flesh in the reader right and now now for me understanding scripture is inseparable from understanding those who understand scripture and so far as they do they reveal a new aspect of the word to me and so it's like this ever expanding word that he calls it the greater word the ever expanding word which which is taking on flesh you know from the very act of reading scripture or, or receiving tradition and so <laughs> that disposition towards traditions a kind of a mystical speculative contemplative though often so also very precise and logical reception of tradition i mean i think that's kind of what what's at the heart of all this stuff absolutely I, I don't know how to respond to that. I was like poetry. It was theopoetic. Uh, yeah. You know, it's when I read Maximus, um, I have a few other books about him and, and, and by him. Um, there's, there seems to be this recurring theme of integrative whole things together, not disassembling things into parts. There's a deep understanding of incarnation, which obviously is the part of your subtitle. And, Maximus to me feels like somebody that holds the the opposites together and then lets that blossom into something new. What was so fascinating with my seminary students is at first they didn't know if I was talking still Christian. Right. But as the logic of Maximus dripped into their imagination, they could see like, oh, this changes everything the way I see everything. Creation now is completely different. What does it mean to see the Christ in all, over all, through all? Man, 
just wonderful. So maybe we got a little ahead of ourselves because I'm, I'm, I want to nerd out the whole time. But uh, Maximus was a later patristic who deeply held to the Chalcedonian formula that the two natures of Christ without confusion, division, separation, or change. But how else would you um, summarize Maximus in a biographical sketch? Yeah, and and that's that is you know as these things tend to be, it's a complicated question that I won't get to the detail details of because there's like two there's two or three different competing lives of Maximus, and some people didn't like Maximus, so they'll sort of write a propagandistic anti-Maximus life. You know, he was he was born you know a bastard child outside of wedlock. He was set at the foot of you know set on the steps of a monastery, which happened to be a heretical monastery. You know, so there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, even just on the basic details of his life, there's a lot of I guess uh, ambiguity or clouds around it. And but I think the notable features are this: Maximus was not a priest. He was not ordained. He is not an official leader in the church. He is a seventh century monk who spent seemingly some time in Constantinople. There's a, there's about 20 years of his life. He had, he has to go to North Africa because of wars and different migrations and stuff going on at the time in the region. And he seems to have a decent network of like letter. I'm translating his letters right now. He's, he's, um, yeah, yeah. There's about 49 of them. It's going to come out in a volume, but he's, um, he's seems like a pretty vast network. And so what, what you, you get the sense that even though he doesn't have an official position with official official influence, he is even in his own lifetime, remarkably respected and sought after. I mean, this is why I mentioned already this responses to Thalassius. Thalassius was an abbot. And I think, I think it was a North African um, uh, monastery. I need to actually look back at that, but um, pretty sure it was. And so, He's just, he basically submits 65 passages from scripture to Maximus and just says, you know, for each one, he has specific questions. Like, what's going on here? How can the scripture say this whenever a scripture elsewhere says this, right? And so, um, and sometimes he just gives the scripture and just says, what does this mean? <laughs> you know, like what's, and so, so, but the same thing is with his other major work, the Ambigua, um, uh, Ambigua to John and also to Thomas, but the Ambigua, you can kind of hear it in the word, the Latin word, right? The, um, uh, the ambiguities again, but there it's in church fathers. So not scripture, but other authorities, like especially St. Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the Cappadocian fathers. And it's like, here's this list. I mean, that's 71, 71 passages from Gregory or Dionysus Areopagite. And just again, look, what does this mean? What does this mean? So he's being sought after um, for his opinion on like all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably in a, a really one of the most important factors of his person is that though he was a monk, so he's integrated into liturgy. He's, you know, he's, he's living a life of asceticism. He's, he's a life of prayer. He, he does write stuff like that chapters for meditation that other monks can, can meditate on. He's included, for example... Uh, probably in the East, one of the most famous collection of texts is called the Philokalia, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's sort of Eastern spirituality one on one. Like these are these are these are the the essential texts of Eastern spirituality. The it's five volumes. The entire second volume, almost all of it, is just Maximus's writings. So various excerpts from. So he's this spiritual master, right? This kind of. But it's just so remarkable because he has no official authority in the church, even in his own lifetime. Um, he's so important That's that as, yeah, he's so important in his life that as an 80 year old man, 
not just because of the opinions he holds in Christology, so about Christ and his two natures, two wills and all that, human and divine will, not just because he has different opinions from important people at the time, but because he won't be quiet about them at, at, at age 80 <laughs> at, the order, at the order of, uh, of uh, uh, the emperor and in collusion with some other bishops, like church leaders, he's tortured. I mean, his tongue is cut out. His right hand is cut off. And two years later, he dies from that. You know, because his right hand, so he can no longer write or speak with his tongue, the opinions he's holding. And they were because they were causing division in the church. And that's, of course, also a political problem at that time. So anyway, the, the point is, even you can see even the way his life ends, which is brutal. Yeah, you know, brutally. Um, but it's because he he has such gravity and his importance. Mm -hmm. People put so much stock in what he says that they're willing to do that to him as an old, you know, to in the state of being an old man. And then 19 years after his death, an ecumenical council more or less ratifies and agrees with the, the very opinions Maximus was holding. So, mm. and from that point on... He's validated posthumously. Yes, exactly. So from that that moment on, both in dogmatics, like prop, like theology proper, technically, he's, he's enshrined as a kind of pillar of orthodoxy because an ecumenical council validates him or, or kind of, uh, yeah, vindicates him rather. Um, but also he's because he's a monk, he's written all this. He's also a kind of spiritual authority and he's he's got a great mm -hmm. tradition prior to him that he's receiving. And anyway, so spiritual, spiritual authority, dogmatic authority, all of it without being an official authority. And I think that has kind of that kind of um, that's fascinating. That reputation that... is sort of especially in the East has, has preceded him over the century since. And that it, it's like uh, the cream of the crop. It rises no matter what, even though he didn't have validation from the gatekeepers, right? These figures, just like, uh, well, first off, I want to think of like Julian of Norwich was neither trained. She was a woman, so she would never be ordained anyways. Yet right. her, her words have stood out. Yep. So, uh, man, I could, I feel like I could study Maximus for like another decade, but I want to <laughs> move on to Gregory of Nyssa next. And, um, yep. so, Within the Christian tradition, we always say that Christ is the beginning and the end, the Arche and the Telos, Alpha and Omega. But you kick off the first section of your dissertation turned book by talking about Christ as the middle. And that was a that was a fresh idea to me that I'd never heard before. So how, could you explain that a little bit further? Because uh, I'm not as smart as you. <laughs> uh, well, I don't, I wouldn't say that, <laughs> but okay. uh, let's say, um, Christ is the mezos. He's in the yeah. middle of all of it, not just the beginning and the end. Right. And so there's right, exactly. And as you mentioned, right. You know, if you, if you read in the new Testament, if you read revelation, you'll see Christ saying I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. If you read, uh, Colossians 117, you'll see, see him described as the archetistios, you know, the beginning of creation um and so we are used to that i think you know paul speaks about um you know uh, christ in whom the end of the ages has come upon us which is a which is a remarkable phrase that the fathers pick up on as well right where it's it's the end which you would normally place in the future <laughs> has come upon us in the past which in that past that moment in time is in the middle so it doesn't say middle, but wow. I think you're already you're already seeing right 
in the New Testament, right. you're already seeing this sense of like this. And that's that's what I'm trying to get at with Maximus's phrase, which is where I take the title from. The whole, the whole, the beginning, the middle, and the end. And um, and you know you that that the, God is beginning, middle, and end is is super common across even outside of the Christian tradition. Uh, you know, in philosopher, you know, Platonic philosophy, you know, God is the sort of source from which all things emanate. Right. Um, and then he's the sustaining cause in the middle here, sort of like in the meantime. And then he's the end toward which all things go. I mean, this this procession and return kind of idea uh, is very common across Christian tradition, across across other traditions, religious and philosophical outside the Christian tradition. But I think where where we get this distinctiveness and we're at what kind of did catch my attention as well was what is what he's speaking. He's speaking not just about God sort of as cause, creator and end of all things, but he's speaking about an event within history. Right. The incarnation itself. Right. Where to quote him from that passage where the title comes from. In Christ, in whom all the ages and all of the creatures within those ages have received their beginning and end. Wow. And so, again, it's have received. It's an event. It's an action in the middle of history. From our perspective, it looks like the middle of history, you know, 2,000 years ago. Right. In a certain certain place, you know, uh, in Palestine 2,000 years ago, right? We can do all the historical work, which is good. Because it is an event. It's a part of history. It's a part of it's it's you can investigate it the way you do other historical events. And yet the claim is further, the theological claim, the deeper claim is this event is yes, you can see it as just uh, you know, one event among many others in history. But actually something the deeper significance of it is that it begins and ends, it might just say it actualizes in the middle of history. Um the whole yeah one of the image one of the images i like to use is is something like um you know a drop in the water where where it sort of drops it hits the water and emanates outward in all directions in concentric circles and as long as we don't absolutize our experience of time which is a line beginning middle end first this then this then that um which is the way we experience everything. It's the way we, we have to understand things in a, on an initial level. But if you don't absolutize and think just because you need that at a certain point, it must be, describe the whole truth. Uh-huh. Then you can start, you can loosen your grip on time, which we, sh- we should do, by the way. I should just, as an aside, <laughs> because uh, because not only because of you know quantum physics and stuff, but also because... Right. Um, the claim of the incarnation is that he who is eternal is also born in time. I and mean, this is Chalcedon, right? Right, right back at the yeah. council. The same one, the one Lord Jesus Christ, born of the Father before all ages, was born in these latter times of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, Theotokos. Right. So we have there, he himself is the identity, the real oneness of eternity and time itself. So if that's true, and if that does emerge to us, it appears to us in time, we shouldn't be really be surprised that its effects on time, whatever direction, right, uh huh, past, future, and whatever else, we, what other dimensions we we start adding, um, uh. it, it it shouldn't really be surprising that it's surprising <laughs> the way yeah, it, yeah. It, it's shot, that is paradoxical, yeah. you might say, um, and actually, you know, a lot of Christians are already willing to admit that, for example, in salvation, you know, was Abraham saved by Christ? Oh, that's yes. Uh huh. 
you know, uh, was he was was Melchizedek uh, saved by Christ? Was you know, and the idea is well, however you work that out in terms of like well Abraham's faith and how that was how that's connected to the cross. I think a lot of systems would at least want to admit that the work of Christ on the cross mm -hmm. is transtemporal. I mean, it's the reason why it saves you, even though you're two thousand years later than that event. Sure, and also Abraham, who's you know whatever, however many hundreds of years or you know prior to that event so um so we it's like we kind of already allow that in so what's called soteriology you know salvation mm -hmm. stuff but then um my kind of question with maximus is well, why wouldn't that be true more like ontologically why wouldn't that be true just for oh. the entirety of all things right all sure. of history yeah and um yeah that's something that i noticed with um so i've, I've like worked in evangelical churches but every time i would quote these types of people i'd be like ah, stop bringing those people up and what i would also notice is i would be deterred from quoting certain passages especially ones that have to say all or all things the restoration right. of all things reconciliation the gathering up so like the gathering yes. of all things together in christ actually seems to be a continual thread yeah. that that seems to be overlooked in the western church and it feels as though, I think Bart, I think Bart talks about time in a perichoretic sense that past, present, future are in a divine dance with each other at all times. And obviously God is Lord of that. I think what sets Maximus apart for me is that he's, he's really not scandalous. When you follow his logic and when you pay attention, like, oh, he talks about Okay, in, in the phrasing you just said, Christ is the end revealed early in the middle of time. And so from that middle stance or that middle event, we can see the whole, the halas of everything, halas, right? The Catholicity mm -hmm. of this Christ event and incarnation that, that reveals everything. And so it's so funny to me because as I study some of these figures, as I learn about them by people who write about it like you, I... I'm almost shocked that these people are shocking. Yes. You know, yes. I, and it's yes. so, it's tragic to me because I feel as though to go back to what we already said, there's some deep riches that are maybe avoided, but at, at best just unknown. And you, you already mentioned it. It's like, it's a whole other Christianity that's actually in my estimation, more beautiful than what I received when I was growing up Lutheran. At least Lutheran's like Catholic light. Like we got everybody, you know, like Bud Light. Um, but as I've explored further east, I'm like, man, this is just beautiful. And now I love looking at the whole tradition rather than just a slice of the pie. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's the thing, right? I mean, a judgment like it's interesting to listen to people, the metaphors they choose to use when they talk about something like orthodoxy or the mm -hmm. tradition. Um, usually they're spatial. I've noticed that. Like there's wow. a circle and you sort of like, you, there's an edges, there's boundaries. And some yeah. people like in my world, in the Catholic world, it's like Pope Francis will walk up to the edge of the of, of orthodoxy, the boundaries, like tip his, tip his toe over into the, I don't know, the yeah. sea of heresy. And, and then sort of, recoil and you know but but it's like he's walking on the edge and it's it's so interesting to me because it utterly it completely uh, evacuates tradition of the sense of uh, motion 
of motion interesting of motion yeah of dia sort of diachronic in other words of development of organic growth right of deepening of the roots simultaneous as you you reach out towards the sun and and there's a lot of other metaphors that have been used in this tradition for tradition itself but i, I bring that up because right a judgment and, and sometimes it's innocent and natural and like it, it, it was also so for me you know reading someone like maximus or origin prior to that uh -huh. It was like, was like, man, this just doesn't sound like anything I've ever known. Yeah, right. It's a, it's a kind of, it's a strange unfamiliarity. That's a, that's an initial moment. Like, what, what in the world? Like, this guy's Christian. This guy's a saint. This guy's a, right. But then there's that second moment, mm. which is this sort of, uh, uh, you know, if the first one was a kind of like strange unfamiliarity, now all of a sudden it turns into like a familiar strangeness. Which is which is a kind of like, right? Because Good. because because all of a sudden, right? What we just said, what you just said, for example, with Maximus, and we're thinking about the beginning, middle, end, and all that. Now I can just go back to like scripture, and it's like, oh, yeah, some of this stuff has just been sitting there all along. Like you said, you know, we shied away from the all things and all things. It's like. Not only do we shy away from 1 Corinthians 15, 28, God will be all in all, sure. but we also shy away from Colossians 3, 11, which specifically says Christ will be, or he is and is in all things. Yeah. yeah. So it's not just God is sort of this, uh, uh, you know, God's omnipresence as cause, as creative, sustaining cause of all things. We're talking about Christ, who was born of Mary, who has the name Jesus of Nazareth, right? he is in all things and is all things okay that's a different yeah. sort of thing there's a different kind of aspect to that and it's it's been sitting there obviously since the new testament and i've read <laughs> it before but it's only like studying maximus that i sort of go back and say oh this really shouldn't have been un utterly unfamiliar to me it's that really what was strange and what was unfamiliar was the depths that i had not yet reached that were already there of course all along yeah you know, it's um, you just made me think of karate. <laughs> so weird, <laughs> All right? But um, what's so interesting is within martial arts, there's like a pedigree. Who's your master? Who's their master? Who's their master? And the lineage of the tradition matters. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a point at which I started realizing, oh, if I want to know how to read the New Testament, I really should get to know the Cappadocians. I really should get to know the apostolic letters, you know, and you start to see oh, if Irenaeus thought like this, and he was a student of Polycarp, who was a student of John, who was right there by Jesus. That's a pretty good pedigree. And Maximus, um, who would you say are some of the, the main voices that spoke to his shaping? So I think, I think, yeah, no, it's a, it, so I think, um, I think there's basically, again, sort of, it's a little bit artificial to say it this way, but those two aspects or of influence that I've already mentioned with Maximus, dogmatic or theological, and then in like spiritual or mystical. I mean, that's an artificial divide, but we'll just go with it for yeah. now. Um, yeah. Let's just let's just say. Um, so I think theologically, this is what makes that question of his life and where he was really born. I mean, that people don't even agree on that where he was born and raised. So interesting because it's very clear, at least to me, that some of his major influences are are kind of Alexandrian. Mm -hmm. uh, or, or Palestinian Alexandrian Christian uh, traditions, like, for example, Origen, uh, like certainly, and this isn't really disputed, Evagrius Ponticus, the, mm -hmm. uh, the fourth mm -hmm. century. Um, he's a spiritual master, but also was controversial, but he was so, so useful for monks 
and for the spiritual life that again in the Philokalia you'll, you'll see Evagrius in there even though he's got a checkered legacy um mm-hmm. but so so you've got origin you've got Evagrius you've got a, you've got the Cappadocians certainly St. Gregory of Nazianzus that he comments directly on all, very often but I think a kind of more and more like a better appreciated influence on him around that same time from that same time is St. Gregory of Nyssa and there are key moments where he appeals to Nyssa, and I think especially on in the fourth chapter of my book, I kind of get into this, especially on um, questions of the fall uh, related to God's act of creation. And then I also think, too, this kind of idea that, because one of the ways to say what we've been talking about with Christ's beginning, middle, end, is that it also means that the whole of creation is the body of Christ, at least potentially. Sure. Right, and that mm-hmm. idea you can see that laid out clearly in Gregory of Nyssa's little work in Illud, which is a commentary on First Corinthians fifteen, and it's very clear that he thinks God is all in all, precisely in the form of all being incorporated as members of the one body of Christ. Mm-hmm. So, like that mm-hmm. idea is very clear, and I think Maximus just basically takes it wholesale. So, Saint Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, a major influence. Um, so there's there's those, and then of course I think later technical, dogmatic, and especially Christological thinkers that in the book, um, you know, I, I'm with, with other scholars I call them the Neo-Chalcedonians. These yeah. are people after the Council of Chalcedon in 451 who are defending and trying to develop and explain the Christology of that council to those that were rejecting the council. Uh, mm. especially those that thought they were following St. Cyril of Alexandria, another influence on Maximus. St. Cyril of Alexandria, whose Christology is very, very much uh, what they call unitive Christology or a focus on the identity, the one subject of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both, you know, in some way, both divine and human. But the oneness is what he wants to foreground all the time. Uh, okay. So, so those people were trying to, you know, Chalcedon, if you read it, it can sound, it does say one Lord Jesus Christ and stuff and one person and all that. Uh-huh. But there's a lot of dualities, right? It's, yes. it's a perfect, perfect uh, God, perfect man, two natures, born of the father. So there's one birth, born of the of the mother, you know, in the latter times, it's two births. So somebody like that's really, really steeped in Cyril's Christology will look at that and say, look, I just see two everywhere. I see division. I see a yeah, divided right, Christ. Right. So the Neo-Chalcedonians, the the general project, what, what, they're, what they're up to, and Maximus is kind of stands at the head of this, is trying to explain and develop um, Chalcedon's Christology in a way that would actually satisfy the desires of the Cerulean's or the unitive one-subject okay. uh, Christology in that tradition. So anyway, that the, that's a kind of quick... You know, um, so I think you, from Origin and Gregory, you get this sort of really synthetic, massive cosmic view yeah. of, 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 of theology. But then I think the technicalities of Christology, you, you know, he gets from uh, the Neo-Chalcedonians. And these are lesser figures, really lesser known names like Leontius of Byzantium, Leontius of Jerusalem, um, and so forth. So anyway, so I, I would say that's on the dogmatic side. The spiritual side, though, of Agrius also there, very, very influential on Maximus. And, um, because uh, of the monastic tradition and the desert yeah, because practices. of this yes exactly and, and there's a whole there's a whole bunch of literature like um like the pseudo macarian homilies is in the background oh, yeah. saint diodocos so, some of these some of these sort of uh ascetic theology people that that um and i think really of agrius more than any of them 
that sort of uh, are are very attentive to the passions of the soul, mm-hmm. to the way that to the way that we can quickly be deceived. So they talk about the the thoughts, and sometimes they'll describe them as the demons. But like you've heard of the seven, you know, deadly sins, or the yeah that comes from this tradition. That comes from uh, that's a simplification of Avagrius's eight eight vices. So this whole sort of like almost proto psychological introspection. Yeah. Well, that's right, how I that understand said, the tropological interpretation. The tropological yes. feels very psychological and very moral at the same time. Yeah, exactly. So that the inspired scripture is is a mirror for you so that you can inspect yourself just as much as you're inspecting the truths revealed of God. You know, you're revealed to yourself. It's <laughs> such a beautiful Christianity. Why? <laughs> what is going on? Oh. <laughs> but you see, uh, I, um, Jordan, in my, in my history, I have... Um, a lot of youth men in my background and I would bring these figures in and I would start creating these affectionate nicknames like Bonhoeffer be D Bon, Thomas Aquinas, <laughs> we call Tommy and they got to know them. And yep. uh, I'm just amazed because I feel as though it's like a, the tradition itself is it's like a water fountain or even like a large scale fountain. There's just so much good, pure water to drink from that can sustain you and hold you together but Mm. i there's a part of me and perhaps you're the same way that kind of laments that this isn't more well known and there's there's this part of me that wants to become for lack of a better word almost evangelistic about this other christianity that's under the umbrella of being christian that's just I love that phrase, the strange familiarity. I'm going to think on that one for a while. But yeah. let, let's shift to talk about the fall before we go into anything. And uh, Maximus, it feels as though he has a unique take on <laughs> the fall of creation that sets that's at least not counter, but certainly different than what conventional Western Christianity would say. So how would you talk about um maximus's understanding of the fall then yeah oh that's that's good so um it's a big topic it's what most of the fourth chapter which is the major chapter i added to my dissertation to fill out this book that's that's the thing the major thing i added um and it's devoted that chapter is devoted mostly to this here's here's what i'd have to here's where where we have to start and it's always where maximus starts okay it's uh you start with the incarnation Here's just a principle throughout there. I know it would need to be justified and all that. I'm not going to. I'm just going to say it. Okay. He he thinks there is no true begin. If Christ really is the revelation of God and of human beings, then Christ is not only the first time God himself has shown up on the scene, as it were, in history, but uh-huh. it's also the first time a human being has finally showed up. Oh. Like right. a full, perfect, human, right. complete, perfect in, in the sense of not just moral, but completed like a work. The work is completed, right? The and, true uh, Father, Adam. is that a way exactly, exactly the true Adam? Which is to say, right? And and we'll get to the fall thing in a second. But if that's true, even if you even if you think Adam was like a, an actual historical episode, like the you know we could you know back in the however many years ago, I think everyone at least would agree that he he didn't live up to his potential. <laughs> right so uh so i guess the, but the but again that's we usually want to make that just a moral thing you know i think we often and I'm, maybe i'm presuming too much but let's just say i where i come from 
it's often presumed that morality is like an added thing or a mode or sort of way of life. Yeah. And, but like, but like what you are is kind of already complete. So you're a human being. The question now is, are you a good human being? Um, and that's called ethics or morality or, or whatever. Sure. But that's, that's artificial as well, because the truth is, you know, uh, well, if God himself is the true, the good and the beautiful, then what is, what is totally good is also totally true, which is yep. to say complete. And what is totally true is also totally good. And so if, if, there hasn't been a complete, a perfect, a good, a truly good, the best, the, the complete human being, then there hasn't really been a human being until, right, the God man wow. is revealed. So we start, so the, so again, that, you know, we, huh. yeah, we could appeal, like you said, to sort of the true Adam discuss, uh, talk in the New Testament and so on. But let's just say, so for Maximus, that's a given. I mean, he explicitly says that if someone wants a text, it's question 59 uh, in, in response to the lawsuits. He says that. In fact, he says that one of the effects of sin is that we cannot perceive our true beginning. So when we, so it's like when you look back, and if you're expecting your beginning to just begin at the beginning of a line, uh -huh. like an like an a, a, a basic emergence into existence, you're going to mistake that as your true beginning. But the true beginning has been revealed in the middle, mm. because that's the true oh, human being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's and a so, double revelation. Exactly, God in true humanity. Yeah, and it yes, exactly right. Exactly, and and then the further, the deepest revelation is that neither are fully who they are apart from one another. Right. Um, right. right. So it reveals that the truth of humanity is the truth of Christ, who is also God. Which is why, for Maximus, and this is again an Eastern theme. The incarnation of God is just the flip side of the deification of man. Right, right. Uh, and, and that's, but anyway, I, I only say that, I say all that because that's important in terms of the framework and the approach of Maximus. He's already starting with the idea that the true beginning has emerged, and it's not necessarily at the beginning of time as we perceive it. True it's beginning. in the middle. Yeah. The true beginning. Now, here's where, and this kind of gets into well, I'll start with the kind of metaphysical thing real quick, but then we'll get to the kind of more practical false incarnation <laughs> stuff. So one of the things he takes, so in the Eastern tradition, and I, I really wanted to write about this more directly, but I haven't had a chance, but it seems to me that the Eastern tradition with origin, so we're talking all the way back in the third century, which is early, early, before the first ecumenical council even met, um, origin makes this question of what is truly God's creation, like center stage. Mm. Now, I'm going to bracket what, what Origen actually thought because everyone's arguing about it. But let's just say the common story that gets attributed to Origen all the way in the centuries following him. And I don't, I'm not so convinced he, he held it himself, but let's just go with it. Um, is, is this. Once a, you know, in the beginning, God, because God never creates anything bad, he's perfectly good. Right. Right. His first creation, as it were was a per perfect total harmony and unity of intellects or of persons or however you want to put souls um, that that were in union with God. And this is prior to this world. And then here, you know, they'll, they'll appeal to texts like before the foundation of the world. He was slain right, before the foundation right. of the world. All this stuff about before the foundation of the world. The foundation, the word there is the throwing down. Kataboli is, is like to throw down. Yeah. And yes, it's a yeah. foundation in that sense, but there's a motion downward. Kata. 
So, so, uh, and that's in the New Testament. So they'll appeal to that and they'll be like, look, so God created an originally good creation. Um, and then it fell away. And this world is the kind of response to the failure of those originally good beings to, uh, to, to stay cleaved or unified with God with the exception of one soul or intellect. And that's the soul of Christ, the human Uh soul. And so it's a weird story. It's a weird story that because then the idea is like, so then that soul was sent down in the middle of history and that kind of catches us all while we're all being caught in these various stages or or, uh, conditions of bodies in order to be brought back and reintegrated into the oneness of God reunified. Uh Um, And so now that's a problematic story for a lot of reasons, but but one of the things it does is it makes you think, okay, it makes you think more directly, I think, than even than we did in the West about uh what exactly is god's act of creation how does it relate to time and how does all that relate to jesus right because if you start with the story that i was taught growing up and i think it's pretty common you Mm -hmm. just get a nice simple narrative it's like well look god created and we'll just we'll pretend like we know what that means he spoke (laughs) and things just (laughs) he 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 spoke and you know it's genesis one he spoke and sort of like out of the what chaos or darkness or something light appeared right and this appeared and this appeared things just sort of popped into being and so he set the stage that's 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 the first act and then you've got adam and eve and you got the fall and that's the second act and then you know go through the rest of the story and christ is sort of an episode in that story a regular yeah. middle episode, a regular middle episode, nothing too remarkable, just sort of gets us towards the end, the denouement. Right, right. Well, if you, if <laughs> the thing is, if um, if the true act of if God's full and complete act of creation is Christ, which which appears fully and completely, that is to say, successfully, in the middle, then you have to rethink the edges of creation, beginning and end, from the middle, which is really the revelation oh, of the whole. That's so good. Okay. So that's Maximus's intuition. He pulls some of that. I won't get to the details, but he pulls some of that from later originists and especially Gregory of Nyssa, who adds this one crucial idea, which is that what appears first in succession in, his, in, in the history of creation can itself already be God's response to something that will occur later in the succession. Oh, I see. Yeah. So he, so that's his famous or infamous, depending on how you look at it, his, his interpretation of say Genesis two verse or Genesis one versus Genesis two, two creation stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He, he will say, well, the first one is sort of the perfect creation, the true creation. The second one, is creation as it has appeared to us, which is already God has already responded to the fall, which occurs in time, but he's built things into the very beginning of creation, which are responses to the failure of creation itself. Okay. And so it's this weird mind bending thing where, again, because God's act of creation isn't really necessarily a straightforward thing to understand, it can accommodate things like he's already sort of responded to something that his very act of creation will initiate. It's this oh, weird I see. double. Yeah. 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 It's, so it was like, it was a project that was already pointing towards the middle. Yeah. And is already responsive to even the very failure of that project. Oh, that's cool. At least. So that idea, right. And so all that to say Maximus's view of the fall is um, at least I argue, and I have to say that because, you know, not everyone will totally agree with me on this, but I think his view of the fall and I give 
a lot of reasons why I think this is that um, the fall is coterminous or almost like simultaneous with the beginning of the right. of the appearance of creation. He says it three uh -huh. times that Adam fell, quote, at the very moment or instant he came into being, um, which which seems really problematic. Like, wait, so again, if God's good, yeah. he can't create something that's bad. Well, that's only if you think that what appears at the beginning of the the sequence is the true beginning of the whole. That's the very thing that's being mm. debated. So then it's not about trying to return back to that. Exactly. It's no longer yes. interesting. So, and I think now somebody might be like, okay, what is the point of all? Like, this seems super complicated, <laughs> right? And I think, I think, and I try to detail in the chapter, but the best I can do in a quick summary is this. God's creation is not, you know, like people like to liken it to an artist making a piece of, you know, painting a, a, on a canvas, a, a portrait or something like that. Um, there are some, there's some truth to that. I think the basic idea that, right, the artist sort of has in mind what they intend, there's the intentionality, sure. uh -huh. there's the, the expression of, of one's creativity, all that stuff, I think, is why we go to that picture. I think that's fine. I mean, that's fine as far as it goes. But the, the truth is where it differs is crucial because when you paint on, you know, on a canvas, the thing doesn't talk back to you or resist its own painting. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So God is not interested in simply making a grand display of like an ordering of things, whether physical or, you know, he's not just making a great, a great matrix of mathematical possibilities. He's not just making a sort of like a landscape devoid of any spirit and thought and freedom and resistance and growth and maturation in wisdom yeah. and so forth. Right. Right. He is instead, I think the truth is creation. The entire project of creation is for him to raise children. He is raising, ch yeah. I mean, yeah. John chapter one, grace, you know, the, the right. law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Christ. He's given you power to become the children of God. Yeah. Why does John chapter one begin the same with allusions to Genesis one? Because, the creation, the project of creation is to give us who by nature are finite, limited, dumb, ignorant, so forth, right. to give us the power to become exactly what we're not by nature, which is to say, right. uh, not God. We're, we're supposed to become in Christ, of course, not on our own power, but because of what Christ has done, because he's made himself human, then being human can be it, it already carries the potential to become God. And so if that's if that's the kind of that's the kind of project is to in other words to become children of God and whatever the children are right they are the same kind as their parents. Uh -huh. So this is the um, I think that's the project and why I bring that up is because I think anyone that has been around children or has even raised children or is right now raising children you know that it's more complicated than some sort of formula that works for every kid right. <laughs> There's certainly not, you know, and if I had that, I'd be a rich man. I would write a book or have a podcast or something. So um, it isn't. It's it's what what you have to do. Yes, there are some patterns. Of course, there are some things that generally work uh -huh. and don't and all that. But what you really need, honestly, at the end of the day, is you need to be attentive and know your actual children. You need yeah. to know them in all, even down to the most unique individual levels. You can try things, and it's, of course, it's trial and error, and that's different for God because he's not trial, trialing things. But... But nevertheless, he's responsive to even our errors in the act of creation, which is itself a condition for the possibility of us even making errors. Yeah.
Yeah, yeah. So, so this project is far more complicated, and I think richer and more interesting, and much more to the to the very heart of the Christian life itself, like practically. Sure. In prayer, right? In in ascesis, in reflection, in liturgy, because what we're doing is we're trying to discern what is true, what is our true beginning, which is also our true end, because we're constantly generating false images of oh. what we are. Yeah, and we're in car We're trying to incarnate these false images of who we are, and in fact, trying to get everybody else to do that as well to conform to it. Mm -hmm. And what we need to and what we need to do is search right with the Spirit, with each other in prayer, with God, search our souls in order to divide out what we've mistaken for God's work, His creation, which is really just our delusion that we've brought into being, we've given our own selves for. And dis disentangle. This is again. I always go back there because it's one of my favorite chapters. But Colossians three, right? After he's listed all the vices, he's sever and bury these things. Sever from yourself and bury these things: greed, you know, and so forth. Um, so that you may become manifest with Christ, and Christ will be all and in all. Uh, so, so this is the work of creation: is to in Christ, the Son of God, to become sons and daughters of God. Right. I love how it anchors it completely in fam familial terms rather than in terms of perfection and imperfection. Yeah. I've always thought something was up. I mean, Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews takes on a very different tone when you take every instance of telos, which is often translated as perfect, as a reference to goal, right. maturity, end, purpose. Yes. But but the the angle and maybe this, I mean, as a father of four, you spend your time around <laughs> all the time, but it it must feel like um, the home is a microcosm then of what the cosmos is already doing, yes. which is so gorgeous. And and John's gospel is my favorite. I understand John Bear wrote a really great uh, yeah. commentary on it, and he also wrote the foreword to this too, which is an amazing compliment. I think... <sighs> Maximus, um, he seems Christotelic, so everything is about Christ as the end, but he's also Christocentric. Christ is at the center of every start and finish of every discussion and thought, and it's remarkable that, that people thought that he was potentially heretical, but <laughs> yeah. he was just unconventional in his time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, and that's, yeah, so... Right. So I, I don't I don't know if I fully answered that previous question, but I'll just sort of put a note on it and say, so when he thinks of the fall, I argue. So you, you, everyone will have to see if they think I, it's a good case or not. But I don't think he thinks primarily in terms of like there was an actual historical episode with two individuals who got a law from somewhere and then they just failed and then it kind of screwed everything up. Uh -huh. um, I don't think he had like, yeah, obviously he didn't have like Darwinian reasons to question that because that was you know quite <laughs> yeah. a bit before that. But I think, I mean, he explicitly says that the fall could always occurs. He yeah. says, he says where it's always happening. I like He's, that. It, and so, so the fall, so that even means from our perspective, when we look back to his on history or the, the history of phenomena or what I, what I call like the phenomenological view of history it will already so what we perceive at the beginning is not yet fully creation because it's not yet the whole mm -hmm. in fact what we perceive at the beginning is already a falling from creation rather than the fullness of creation mm -hmm. 
And so it, it's not that not because he's a Gnostic or a heretic or whatever. It's because he he so believes that Christ is the whole, the beginning, the end, the true beginning, that he doesn't even think our 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 perception of what the beginning is, the beginning of the line of, of history. He doesn't even think that can compete or really contain what the true beginning is because that doesn't happen until the middle. That's why I started the book with the middle. <laughs> That's so good. Uh, last question, and then we'll wrap it up. Just and sure, you have to rapid answer this because okay, <laughs> we probably could talk for hours over beers. Oh yeah. Um, so as I think about the gifts of Maximus, and I understand that not many of his works have been translated, so that's why he's relatively obscure in non-Greek speaking areas. What would you say in this moment for today is the the theme or the one idea that you wish Western Christianity could glean from him? Is there is that it an approach? It? Is it a theme? Is it what is the one thing that you hope? Yeah. <laughs> I think I I will say this. I, I think what's critical is this that the incarnation is not a plan B. It is yeah. the one and only one and only plan a there is no other work there is no other plan that is something other than the incarnation of god you know uh, of the word you know according to the quote that i organized the whole book around always and in all things who seeks the he seeks always in all things to actualize actually the mystery of his incarnation that means that the the incarnation is not just a rescue mission that's a response to a prior fall and failure, but it is in fact the beginning, the middle, and it's the whole. It's the logic of the entire structure of the act of creation itself. Uh. And I think if that, I think if if one be, like is convinced of that, and then starts, and this is why I was drawn to Maxus from the first place, and you then start to think through the implications of that. That's when this whole other sort of, as you said, like this whole other kind of view of Christianity opens up. That's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, Jordan, thank you so much. This was a real, real pleasure. It took me about a month to get through your book because I didn't want to speed read it. But it, <laughs> yeah. it was really, um, it must have been fun to be there for the defending of it. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was uh, a lot of energy. <laughs> <laughs> That's all good. No, it was fun. It was fun. Yeah. Uh, well, again, thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, John.